Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming back to the podcast, Brian McLaren. Brian is a noted author and theologian and has meant a great deal to me. Uh, He wrote the fantastic New Kind of Christian book trilogy that I consumed when I was in high school and college, which was really formative for me on my uh, spiritual faith journey. It's very fantastic. But he's on the show today to talk about his most recent book, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Belief Stopped Working and What to Do About It. Brian and I get into a great conversation about the book, as well as what to do with our doubt in society, what to do about systemic racism, what to do about um, different folks and their refusal to change, or perhaps their inability to change based on the fact that they've never been given permission to question why they believe what they believe. It's a fantastic discussion. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So stick around. My conversation with Brian will be right up after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, I am so excited to have him back on the show. I'm always excited when he stops by. Mr. Brian McLaren. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm super happy to be with you on your show. I think you do a great job. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to to kind of dig into a couple of different areas. We're going to be talking about your book, Faith After Doubt, uh, Why Your Belief Stopped Working and What to Do About It. And we're going to cover all things doubt-related, not to be confused with the play by John Patrick Shanley, which is uh, very fantastic for those who have not uh, um, read the play and or seen the movie. But that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> we're talking about Faith After Doubt. Um, but I do want to uh, kind of start with a question. So here at the Detox Podcast, we are detoxing from life, and we invite others to do the same, even if just for a short time. So to really level set the conversation, I want to ask you, Brian, what are you currently, quote unquote, detoxing from? Well, I guess like a lot of us, uh, I'm still recovering from the election. Yes. I think I was pretty realistic that after the election, the craziness would not stop. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, and and. I- I think just trying to sort of accept that things are going to continue to be a little bit crazy for a while. And uh, yeah, so that that's what I would say I'm detoxing from. <laughs> that's a fair, that's fair. I think for me, it's definitely been a emotional roller coaster, especially over the last four years. And in at the start of this journey, I would say having only one child and then having two. And at the very beginning, it was the conversation around, you know, what did I just bring a kid into? And then it became a, do I want to bring another child into this? I don't know what the world's going to look like. And it, it is a difficult journey. I think often to think about or to try and, and meld ourselves to what we think is going to happen for the future. And I was struck, I went out um, over Thanksgiving, my family, we, we rented an RV so we could get out in nature, stayed at all these national parks and, and did a lot of hiking. And it was good for the soul and very refreshing mm. and reaffirming. And I was struck by the fact that there was a quote by FDR in one of these parks. And it said, we can't often build the future for our kids, but we can build our kids for the future. And well, it resonated so well with me because I go that that's it. I mean, 
we can yes. try and we can plan and we can do our best and we can pray or we can meditate. But at the end of the day, there's only so much we can do, but it does start at yes. home. The good work starts yes. at home. And if we're able to know that first and foremost, yes. then we can build out to make a more inclusive world. And, and so I do want to talk about uh, today's sponsor of the show. It is Snuffy. Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and <laughs> confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. Shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y dot C-O. And the owner and operator of the company is great friend of the podcast, Nick Silvestri. He designed the Detox Podcast logo. So if you like the logo, want to go support him, go check it out. Um, but Brian, I want to start out You've written so many books in your lifetime and your career, and you've definitely talked about doubt in, in different capacities, um, yeah. whether it was through the new kind of Christian or it was by examining something, or even recently when you were talking about through your brilliant podcast series, Learning How to See, about the different types of biases that we have and and, yes. and how we can, some, some doubt about different types of people can creep in and we can start to form these opinions of folks. But I, but specifically for this book, what was the, the origins for you to write it and why was now the right time to do it? Yes. Well, I, as you know, Joe, I've been doing quite a bit of work with the Center for Action and Contemplation and uh, uh, Richard Rohr has been a dear friend for a couple decades now. And many years ago, Richard and I were in some restaurant. We were speaking uh, at the same place, and we'd gone out for a meal. And he said to me uh, something like this. He said, Brian, I'm coming to realize that a lot of the things that we want to teach, people are not ready to hear. Mm. And we have to help them become ready to hear it. And if we actually were to put our energy into helping them become more ready to hear, um, then the things we want to teach would would stick, you know. Mm, right. And that that really uh, got through to me. And so what I had been uh, working on developing, really probably by by that time for 20, 25 years already, was this four stages of faith, uh, this model of looking at faith as as something that grows through a certain kind of coherence. Um, uh, I call that the first of those coherences simplicity. And then that begins to break down and it grows into a new co coherence that I call complexity. And then that breaks down and then there's a time of perplexity. And then that gives way for some people to what I would call harmony. And uh, like you over the last four years, it's been very disturbing to me to watch us increasingly live in different realities with different sets of facts. And it, it made me realize that we have a lot of people who are stuck at a first stage and they need permission to doubt that stage, to move on to different stages. And, and it's not that they are refusing to learn things that might come later on. It's that they're unable to in, until they get permission to break out of those early stages. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I think so often we get, we get used to one way of thinking or believing or speaking. And when, and yes. we don't know that they, that it's right or acceptable to start to question this existence and, and poke yes. and prod totally. In fact, my, my original title for the book was permission to doubt. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, 
I think one of the things that I'm really happy about in the book is that in the first several chapters, I just got to sort of slow down and talk about the pain of doubt. Yes. And how agonizing it can be. And one of the things that became even clearer to me as I wrote the book is that doubt is not just an individual experience. The reason, one of the reasons doubt is so painful is if we follow our questions through to different conclusions, very often it means being excluded or shamed or marginalized from communities that mean so much to us. So it's, it's a scary, scary process for a lot of people. It is. I mean, growing up in the church and then going to a small private Baptist school, I saw a lot of this. I saw a lot of people in various stages of their their religious journeys, and there was a lot that needed, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, although it might come out that way, needed the simplistic aesthetic of the feeling of, yes. of the gospel and what that meant, yes. because that's that's what they needed for affirmation yes. at that time. And there's nothing wrong with that to a point. And I think, yes, and that was fine. And so you didn't want to, you didn't want to take away that safety net and that feeling of comfort, but you also wanted to have conversations with folks about, you know, maybe we could think about this more holistically. Maybe there's a deeper way we could understand yes. what the context of what, what this specific passage was written in and, and perhaps there's a deeper learning here um, as yeah. opposed to some guy got swallowed by a big fish. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. Yes. But not everybody's ready for that and not everybody, not everybody's ready for it has permission. Right. And, and, and this is where, you know, we have to be sensitive to people to yes. see what they're ready for. And I think that's part of what Richard was talking to me about at that dinner that night. Uh, and, and this is the thing I think that I have underestimated very often. And that is that for many people, especially in this first stage that I, I call simplicity, their, their brain is really active. It's not that they're lazy mentally right. or intellectually. Their brain is really active, but it's really active within the confines of an authority structure. Yes. And there is some group, some individual, some community. Uh, it might often be a parent, especially for, you know, young, younger people, but even some older people, they live under fear. I can't say or think anything my daddy will disapprove of. Right. And, and you, you realize, oh, until they come to the place where that's not working for them. They, they're so afraid to ever cross any of those boundaries, you know, and, and yes. so their brains are really, really active, but they're active at figuring out how to make things work within that authority structure. Does that, does that make sense? It makes a hundred percent sense. And I think it's something where we need to be sensitive to your point of where folks are in their journey, allow them to express yeah. their, their joy and their pain and all of the aspects of their emotion. And then keep asking questions. I think the way in which really with anything, but I think in this instance, the way in which we grow individuals and larger groups of people from, from getting from the simplicity to the complexity and perplexity and harmony is by starting to ask more and more questions. Why do we feel this way about this passage? What do we feel that Jesus is trying to say? 
what do we feel was the context? Let's look at the context. Now you're curious, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like you, you don't, you don't, <laughs> nobody responds to one yelling at them or, or feeling like they're being talked <laughs> yeah. down to, right? And so the way yeah. in which you engage folks, whether it's children or whether it's peers or anybody in between is by allowing them to feel, listened to, validated, and, and having that dis, the discussion with. And then by asking those questions, that's where I grew. I had a great mentor who would ask me questions. Why do you believe this way? What, what do you feel that this is trying to say? And I'm like, I don't know. It says right here that, you know, um, he was mad that people were in the church and he overturned tables. Like, I don't, I don't know. It just <laughs> seems like he threw a temper tantrum and be like, I think there's more going on. Let's, let's unpack this. Let's unpack yes. why somebody was angry enough to flip a table in a, in a temple and, and why all of this was going on. But, but until we get there, it's still a journey. I, I think about the correlation to your point about where we're at as a society with the systemic racism and the social unrest and how a lot of people are, are just now noticing what has been going on for yeah. decades. And, and you don't get mad and yell at them. Like, how could you not see this? You're an idiot. You say, hey, thank you for showing up. We got a lot to talk about. Let's get some questions. Why do you feel this way? What are you seeing? Let's unpack that and let's do some good work to get you on the path to do more. And I think that's always the quest is let's unpack what you're feeling. Let's vet that out. Let's see the conclusion and then let's do some more good work. You know, uh, Joe, as you say that, I think of a, a principle that uh, it really comes from psychology. Uh, I talk about it in my work on biases, but it's the principle of complementarity. Mm, that yes. uh, one of the most genuine ways that we can help other people is by modeling the behaviors or attitudes that we hope they'll have. We can't force them. We can't shame them. We can't, you know, bribe or coerce them, but we can model it. And the way you just described asking questions I'm modeling curiosity. Yes. And if I model curiosity about you, sincere curiosity, there's a good chance that without you even ever making a decision to do so, you might say, well, what do you think about that? And then you show curiosity to me. Right. And I'll tell you another thing that I think we model that really helps people when we model vulnerability to tell our own mm -hmm. stories. Yes. Um, and so we hear somebody else and they're, you know, making their point and we might think their point is factually inaccurate ethically questionable we, we but if we just tell them you're a liar or you're misinformed or yours you know yeah. it's just going to make them defensive right uh but then you, you take the vulnerability to say you know i used to feel exactly that way mm -hmm. i used to see things exactly that way yeah and then the person is expecting you to get in an argument and you don't, you just, you just start vulnerable. You just leave it there. And then yeah. they say, well, what happened or what did you change? What's very different when you're sharing that to answer a person's question yeah. than when you're getting in an argument. And yes. so much has to do with each of us learning the skills of creating space where it's safer for other people to, to think and doubting it really plays a key role in this because if I can be open with people about my own questions and doubts, it, it at least makes it safe for them if they ever want to, if yes. they ever want to express their own. I think it's imperative that you have 
books like this, which have questions and journeys that everybody that's reading it has, mm. but they haven't been given permission to explore yeah. it. Yeah. And when you pick up a book and you read about the deeper that you, Brian, went on your pastoral journey, the more doubts you had, it yeah. encourages somebody who's part of the congregation to go, well, if he's got doubts and he's okay, then I can have doubts and I can explore these and I'm going to be okay too. Yes. The more we normalize having these questions and having these journeys, the more we have an inclusive religious and spiritual experience. Yeah. And I think we, we, in a, in a interesting way, we don't have to argue so much about God and spirituality because in the act of vulnerability, when I put my heart out there and then you respond, you know, with kindness and curiosity and interest, we don't have to, nobody has to prove to me that God is real. I'm experiencing right. God in the, in the love uh, of our, of our interaction. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in the book, I say something like this, that it's hard enough to have to go through doubt, but it's, just impossible to go through doubt and have to pretend that you don't have any doubt. Yeah. And, and the act of pretending yeah. is so exhausting. It is. And one of the things I really, uh, I think, I hope my book can help with this, but I'll tell you, I think podcasts help people with this so much. Yes. As people are becoming more open about their questions and telling their stories about going through shifts and deconstructions and so on in their faith. I, I can just picture thousands of people, you know, sitting in their car, driving to work, listening to this and thinking, I'm not alone. I'm yeah. not the only one. I don't have to pretend anymore. Exactly. That's the key is stories. You know, you can, de yeah. you can question and yell about quote, you know, like statistics. I'm using air quote statistics or facts. Yeah. I'm using that because I think everybody has facts that they want to bring up to justify their point. There are facts, facts, and then there are facts yeah. you want to use to justify your point, <laughs> right? Like, let's just, let's just be clear. Some facts are not facts, but you can argue about that to your blue in the face. But if I lead with vulnerability and I talk about yeah. the fact that I didn't realize I had privilege and I walked through life yeah. unaware of how unafraid yes. I was about my day-to-day -day existence. And I learned when a friend shared their very, very heartbreaking story with me, and it was a wake-up call, and it was, oh, this world has been created to make me, a white cisgender man, safe, and nobody else yes. feels safe, yes. then that's my personal story and my journey. You can't question that. You can question whether or not the world is like that, but you can't question my feeling in the world. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's 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 exactly right. And um, and so this is a big part of our job uh, to recognize, though, that some people are in families or churches or denominations or cults. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they were to admit to anyone, mm -hmm. if they were to show vulnerability to anyone, they would be crushed they would right. be threatened they would be looked down upon they wouldn't be trusted and so they have to be on guard you know it, it's stressful it, yeah. it takes something out of you 
They have to be on guard all the time. And, and one of two things happens. They succeed in, at being on guard all the time, which in a certain sense guarantees that they'll become a hypocrite because they're never, they never let their true face show. Right. You know, that word hypocrite comes, uh, hypocrite um, comes from, uh, from the Greek and it means a mask, yeah. some, a mask that you put over your face. They never take off the mask. So the more they succeed, the more they become hypocrites or they begin to experience self-hatred because they, they feel, I can never match up. Uh, I can't keep the mask. Right. <laughs> can't keep the front going. And, yeah. you know, and you know, you bring up an interesting point when you talk about the, the hypocrite aspect of it all would be something that was very interesting to me. And it brought up a story that I had, that I had heard when you were talking about the portion in your book where you were discussing the, the more you got into like deeper, I guess I would use the air quotes here, deeper into the church, the more you, you had doubts about the, the inner workings, the yeah. institution, what are we doing? What are we questioning? Where, where are we going? What, where is this a, a spiritual journey and where is it a business and, and all of these practical doubts. And it reminded me, um, uh, quick plug, if those are listening and they're interested, I do a music podcast called After the Encore. And Volume 4, which I just released, was all about former Christian rock band lead singers and some who are still uh, religious and some who are not and all of the reasons why they left the Christian music. So it's very, it's, it ties in very nicely. But I was speaking to Owen Thomas, who is the lead singer of the Elms, and he was talking about how they were billed as a Christian band. And when they would show up, they would be critiqued, showed up to churches, they would be critiqued by parents or youth pastors for not, um, quote unquote, quote, say, bringing as many kids to salvation as they would have liked. Yeah. They weren't as much of a worship band as they liked. Yes. And and that was partly what drove them away from their Christian music label. Yes. And I helped out at a church in growing up. And there was a period of time where we were all at a staff meeting. It was a budgetary meeting. And uh, the specific pastor, youth pastor, showed up late. And all he did was he said, this was after a camp, and he said, how many, um, how many, uh, kids did we save was the phrase that he used. And they mm -hmm. provided the number and he said, Hmm, how many did we save last year? And it was down. And he said, who is the worship band? They provided the name. He said, all right, we're never hiring them again because they didn't do their job. And then he left. And that was the oh moment for me where I went, I oh don't understand what I'm witnessing. And, yeah. and it was a very, it was a huge doubt filled moment where I went, I don't even know if I, like this whole structure that I've been working into and my original goal was to go into it as some type of a pastor yeah. was brought down that day because I just yeah. went, if this is the type of people that are regularly in the, this institution, yeah. then I don't want anything to, to deal with it. And it was very disheartening. I think people would be surprised. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, a pastor for 24 years. I planted a church. I mentored and helped a lot of other church planters I think people would be surprised how many ministers uh, really go through spiritual struggles because yeah. they, they kind of get behind the curtain and sometimes they see things in their fellow pastors yeah. that really dishearten them. Sometimes they see things in their congregation members yeah. and sometimes their congregation members see things in them <laughs> right. and, and, and all of it leads to a kind of, uh, yeah, a, a kind of critical moment right. when we either fake it or we come clean. Right. And, and, and if we come clean and say, yeah, we're not living up to the words we say, right. let's at least acknowledge that. 
what do we do now? You know, and uh, yeah, and and that to me is is this kind of doubt that opens the doorway to authenticity and opens the doorway to growth. Uh, what kind of God would want us to choose pretense and superficiality over that kind of honesty? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that was a moment where I wrestled with it for several years about what do I even yes. feel is my belonging in the world, I guess I would say. Yeah. And then it got to a point where I went, well, I, I know what I feel and what I feel is true and valid as far as there's more out there than just me. I'm a part of something bigger yes. and I want to contribute to the well-being of myself, my society and and, and do good. And I feel yes. I can, I was like, I can't describe it. It's a presence I feel. And I feel it stronger in some moments than others. And that to me is my spiritual belief. And I'm, I'm leaning into that and I'm going to yeah. put some distance between myself and a, an institution, but I know what I believe in my heart and in myself. And that's what I'm going off. And that was where I started to rebuild my, my, my belief structure and my yeah. journey, it started there and it was difficult because I had a lot of doubts and I recognized all of my doubts were in other fallible individuals as opposed yes. to anything greater than that. And so I, I started from there. Um, I would love to talk about, speaking of starting with the brain, the, you break down in your book the, the three different types of brain, the intellectual brain, the uh, intuitive brain, I'm sorry, the instinctive brain, the intuitive brain, and the intellectual brain. So walk yes. us through the, the three different categorizations of the brain and how one interprets the scriptures in each sure. of those lanes. Sure. Well, that was a fun part of the book for me to work on because I have a few friends who are, you know, psychologists and experts in, in the brain, and I've done a good bit of research myself. And the first thing we have to say is the brain is so complex that nobody knows how it works. Uh, and anything that we say is a simplification. Um, but a, a lot of brain theorists would say th there's some truth to this. It's way more complex than this. But, um, but that uh, the part of our brain, if, if we, you know, think about the theory of evolution, if we go back to fish and reptiles, obviously they have a brain and their brain is doing something. Right. Um, and then we look at mammals and their brain has another set of capabilities. And then we think of primates and especially, you know, humans. And we think, okay, and our brain has another set of capacities. Um, and so, you know, that, that reptilian or fish level brain, um, that's the part of our brain that's oriented towards survival. Right. And people often talk about the fight, flight, or freeze. And there are a couple of other uh, functions as well. But they're survival-oriented functions. I'm worried about safety. I'm seeking pleasure i'm uh i, I uh it, it's my uh, it's my instinctive brain for survival and um that's the part of our brain that's been around the longest and it's the part of our brain that is so fast it works so quickly that we aren't conscious of it our conscious brain is slow in comparison to that part of the brain right um and then that next level the mammalian brain or the intuitive brain you think about mammals being herd animals and they're always aware of their interactions with each other. And, they're, and there's the top dog or there's the, the lead horse, you know, and, um, and you, they, they fall into a kind of uh, 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 pecking order, which is a term we get actually from bird br brains, which actually they're smarter than we gave them credit for. Bird brain. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, uh, and of course, the other thing about mammals is 
mothers nurture their babies. And sometimes mothers and fathers work together to care for their babies. And so this is the part of the brain that's very oriented toward belonging and it's very oriented toward affection and uh and uh emotion and it's 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 a part of the brain that that also works very very fast uh socially how are we fitting in with our group um and uh, and then the rational or intellectual brain uh is this new addition it's sort of the junior member of the three member committee and it's the part of the brain that is thinking uh, that is doing the work of analysis and looking at causes and effects and classifying and defining things. And, uh, and when we think about doubt, uh, here's the thing, doubt goes on on all three levels. Mm. And if we think about any decision we make about doubt, all three levels are involved. So for example, um, let's say a person goes to a church that says, and this church interprets the Bible verses to say that LGBTQ people are objectively disordered or they're inferior or that, you know, they're choosing a lifestyle, all that kind of talk that a lot of us have heard. And this person thinks, well, hold it. My brother is gay and he's the best human being I know. Um, And how do I put that together? So now they've got an intellectual doubt, Mm -hmm. but before they can even process that thought they also think if i side with my church i will hurt my brother Mm -hmm. this is their intuitive brain their relational brain their mammalian brain if i side with my church i'll hurt my brother if i side with my brother i'll be rejected from my church Mm -hmm. and and now this is a matter of loyalty and belonging and then you think and if i get kicked out of my church if i don't fit into my church I'll be alone and I'll be in danger and I won't have any friends. And now that sort of fear oriented uh, brain is involved. So if, if we just realize that all of these negotiations are happening faster than we could ever even be aware of it, that's part of what makes doubt so interesting and also so agonizing. What do you feel that, f- what, hmm, how do I want to frame this? I would say there are so many Institute. I feel. Let me back this up a bit. I would say that a lot of the work that you're doing, and then we were talking offline about. Uh, you did a, a Zoom webinar before the election with the. Remind me of the church that it was again. Uh, yeah, United Church of Christ. Thank and you it so was much, Tracy Blackman and I. Yes. Yes, that's right. And there's a lot of great work that churches like that are doing here in the world and in the United States. But yet there are still so many churches which are pushing forward a thought process and a belief structure that that excludes more than it includes. So what can people, yeah. if they are, if they are wanting to, if they do have doubts that they're working through, that they want yes. to be more inclusive and they're wanting to grow more and they're, they're trying and they're starting, but they're part of a, a an institution, which is more often than not exclusionary. Yes. How can they reconcile with that? Yes, yes. So th- I would say, uh, first of all, uh, there are something like 60 million Americans who grew up in church and have dropped out, who are alive right now wow. in America. So that's, this is happening all the time. Right. And, and so there are a lot of people in this situation. And there are two things I'd say. The first is, 
um, you, you need to try to find a friend who you can be safe and open with. If you have at least one, it really makes a difference. And some people think, I don't have a single friend I could be open with about this. I can't talk to anyone at my church. Um, and, I, and all of my other friends are secular, so they won't even understand why this even matters to me. And what I'd recommend in, in that circumstance is you might find a retreat center, or you may never even heard of this, but there's something called a spiritual director. Mm. They're kind of like people whose job it is to just try to help you spiritually. And you'll often find them at a Catholic retreat center or at a monastery. And um, there's a website you can look up um, if, uh, to find a spiritual director. But this is where you need another human being to process this with. Yeah. Because uh, this social dimension of faith and social dimension of doubt is deeply important. The second thing I would say is this is where books can be of help to you. And uh, and podcasts can be of help to you. And there are so many great podcasts like yours now um, that are creating space for these conversations to happen. Um, if you have those two things, uh, at least one human being, and, and you know that there are other resources, you can make a whole lot of progress. But then you're going to reach a really interesting decision at some point. And that's going to be, will your congregation be able to handle you being open and honest, or will they not? Mm. And it's not a matter of you rejecting them. It's a matter of them rejecting you. Right. And, uh, and those are difficult decisions that people have to make. Um, and you don't need to, people don't need to jump ahead to that decision right now sure. uh, if they can take those other two steps uh, closer at hand. But just earlier today, I was in conversation with a young pastor. I think he's a youth pastor, or associate pastor at a church. He's been, and he, his church is one of those, it, the church has been very, very rigid and exclusionary about a lot of things in the past. But over the last few years, as he's been on his journey, some of the other pastors have started opening up to each other about their questions and their journey. And they've taken some courageous steps in, in, in bringing about change. So very often what people might find out is, I'm not the only one. There's yeah. other people. And this could be the beginning of some change in a whole faith community. It's so interesting to me how when you have COVID-19, where yes. I feel where I get frustrated has been the situations where I've heard a lot of let go and let God. Yeah. And not a lot of belief in science to protect us, which is frustrating. Um, I know speaking from my personal connections with family members who may or may not be listening, but who, who definitely were, I had a conversation and I said, are you going to church is, or have you been staying at home and, and streaming it and watching it and staying safe? Yeah. And this is in the early days. And they said, well, you know, the best thing is when the, the we're in Texas, when the state shut down, our pastor said, nope, we're not doing it in person. I said, that's when he shut it down. Not, not before you were still going. Yeah. And they were like, well, yes, because we have faith. And, yeah. and I said, I think there's a way in which you can have faith and not walk off a metaphorical cliff 
and expect to be swooped up. I, I just, I, this is where I, I struggle is, is, and I think a lot of people also have this, this kind of, this doubt aspect as well, is how do we, how do we engage in discussion with either ourselves or with friends and family who are in that mindset of God will protect me all encompassing, but yet still tell them, right. But there's still some precautions we should take, like take, like, you know, the equivalent of putting on a seatbelt when you drive, people don't just not wear a seatbelt. So how do we get people on, on board that train? I know definitely some of it has to do with the politic, the, uh, politic, what am I trying to say? Um, making the mask. Politicizing. Thank you. Yes. Politicizing the masks which definitely didn't help, but I, but how, how can we reconcile that and work with those who, who want to just walk around unmasked with full faith? Yeah. Uh, well, here, you know, one of the, uh, one of my favorite parts of this book, Faith After Doubt, uh, I, I interacted with a, a writer named Alan Watts, who was yes. very famous back in the sixties and seventies when I was growing up. And Alan Watts uh, said that faith can either be, faith can be like an open window through which we see the world. said, but here's where we get into trouble. If what we want to see out the window is always a blue sky with puffy white clouds, and we decide, sometimes when I look out the window, I see a gray sky. So we paint the window blue and paint Mm -hmm. puffy white clouds. Um, You know, I I would say that's not good faith. That's make-believe. It's not healthy faith. And, and one of the great problems with faith is it allows people to tell themselves what they want to hear. Right. And, it, and uh, so the ironies of the, these ironies are easy to point up out in other people. Uh, they never thank you for telling for showing them. But for example, a lot of the people who say, oh yeah, I don't wear a mask, I trust God. And then they say, and I have a lot of guns because there are criminals out there. Well, I want to say, if you're, why don't you trust God to protect you from criminals if you're trusting God to protect you from viruses, you know? Right. Um, and then they wear a seatbelt. I say, well, why don't you trust God to protect you from 18 wheelers? And yeah. they lock their doors and they have a pass, password on their uh, computer. Right. And, you know, uh, so you, you realize these, there are so many things going on around what people say they believe. And, um, and I've come to believe, as you know, from the book that a whole lot more of faith is about tribe than it is about truth. Yes. Uh, And people are deciding which group they want to be part of. And I'm sad to say this, but I think what this boils down to in a lot of ways, not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, is that um, I want to be part of the people who act tough and don't wear masks. Right. (laughs) Yes. and, and it's yeah, it's and, and they might bring God into it for all kinds of reasons. But yeah, that's uh, I think other things are going on that they may not even be aware of. And it's when you boil down, when you get past all the pomp and circumstance and the, the declarative statements and you start talking to people, you may find out this person's telling themselves it's safe to go out, but they don't need to wear a mask because their business was affected by this and they're struggling to make ends meet. So they're creating a reality in which they can make a viable business. And when you start to unpack that, yes, you realize that the fear is real. It's just manifesting in different ways. 
Yes. Yes, that's a that, that's a and and that comes back to something you said earlier, Joe, when you talked about curiosity. Yeah. If we jump to conclusions, this is why the person's wearing the mask. Um, we'll never find out, maybe exactly. on some deeper level, that something that a very different story is unfolding right. for them. Yeah, that, Definitely. that's that's right. As we're starting to wrap up, I want to know if if there's one thing that you want folks to know about the book that we haven't covered yet. Well, um, here's the thing uh, I would say for a lot of us who grew up in in churches that were quite authoritarian and, and that that said, it's if you don't look at it our way, we, we aren't going to trust you and right. you really don't belong here and you're rebellious or you're, you know, listening to demons or whatever it will be. Um, if if people are part of congregations like that and they're and they're not satisfied. The thing I would say to them is don't let your congregation put a ceiling on your spiritual growth. Mm. Um, don't let your congregation put a ceiling on how, how loving a human being you can be. Um, don't let anybody put a ceiling on how wise you aspire to be. Um, and, and doubt you don't have to see doubt as your enemy. You really can see it as kind of a doorway or a portal to go from the, the, the way of seeing and the, and the assumptions that you were raised with to, to gain something bigger. And you'll live with that for a while. And then you'll realize, you know, there's even more than I, real, than I thought there. And something happens, and I, I can tell just talking to you that this has happened to you as well, Joe, where you finally get to a point where you're able to be comfortable with saying, I don't know, and I don't know if I will ever know. Uh -huh. uh, and to me, one of the most beautiful, uh, I think it's impossible to give a great definition of faith in just a sentence. So I, I prefer to have a lot of different understandings of faith. Sure. But one beautiful definition of faith is how we live with what we know and what we don't know. And, uh, and learning to live with humility and uh, a bias toward love, uh, that's a good way to live. And, and that's where faith, I think, really wants to take us. Uh, toward the end of the book, I, I really bear down on a phrase um, from the Apostle Paul's writings in the book of Galatians, where he says, uh, uh, he says a lot of the things that people are obsessed with don't matter at all. He says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And if we feel ourselves being drawn toward that point, I think we're, uh, we're moving toward maturity. That is fantastic. Well, we'll end it there and transition to the next segment of the episode, which is things to check out. So this is a segment where I share one thing I'm reading and one thing I'm listening to. And I ask the guests to share one thing they're reading and one thing they're listening to. Uh, I don't ask for watching because I feel we are all at home consuming endless hours <laughs> of streaming. So it would do us a a bit of good to read something and, and get out in nature and listen to something. That is what I choose to do. Yes. So I encourage others to do the same. So I'm currently reading. It is the leader's guide to unconscious bias, uh, how to reframe bias, cultivate connection and create high performing teams. Um, it's by Pamela Fuller, Mark Murphy and Ann Cho. So it is very good. It's, 
it's interesting because it pairs very well, actually, quite a bit with your book, Doubt, about the, the, the way the brain works and how we process bias and how we're not aware. We have that unconscious bias, and we have a quick way of thinking about uh, and making a gut reaction about something or a situation. And when we're able to take a step back and unpack why we're feeling the way we're feeling and understand how we arrived at that piece of information, only then can we truly start to peel back the layers of bias and start working towards a better society. So that's what I'm reading. And then I'm listening to, I just, well, I just finished re-listening to, I should say, but it's your brilliant podcast, Learning How to See. I think if anybody is wanting a, um, uh, a, companion piece to this podcast and and you're wanting to know how can we as a society start, especially in a religious institution and a spiritual based society, start to unpack the different biases that we as humans have. That's a great place to start. And you do a great job of breaking it down in each of the episodes uh, with the different biases that we have. So that's the one thing I'm reading, one thing I'm listening to. And Brian, what is one thing you're reading and one thing you're listening to? Okay. I should say that one of the best books I read this year was a book called Womanist Midrash by Will Gaffney. Oh, nice. uh, and uh, it, Will is an African-American uh, theologian uh, who, she, she just brings brilliant insight to the biblical text. So I highly recommend that. And I'm now reading a, another book of womanist uh, theology called Sisters of Dust, I believe is the title. And I'm just drawing a blank on the author's name. I just started that. Um, And if I could, in terms of something I'm listening to, uh, I have been listening to some amazing music lately. Uh, That's really been meaning a lot to me. And um, I have a friend who's a singer-songwriter. His name is Fran McKendree, M-C-K-E-N-D-R-E-E. And people could find his uh, YouTube channel. And uh, his music has just been uh, bringing me a lot of joy. And uh, I'm honored. Uh, a, a couple songs I wrote, he has recorded. That's really fun for me to listen to, his beautiful uh, renderings. Um, I'm just trying to think. There are so many songs of his that I'd recommend. Uh, but uh, uh, he has a song... Uh, boy, the, the line that sticks with me is, I wish that you would try one more time. And uh, oh, what a, what a beautiful, beautiful song. So uh, yeah, th- that's been, his music has been enriching me a lot lately. I absolutely love that. All right. Thank you so much. We're going to transition to the last segment of the episode, which is the dad joke of the week. It's a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guest, or in this case, Brian knows. So suspecting guest while the audience groans, uh, but I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guests. So it works out, but I do like to put my guest on the spot. Brian, do you have any jokes you would like to offer up today? Oh, I'm so sorry. I should have been prepared. <laughs> I I should have been prepared. Um, and if I did have one, it would have been one of the jokes my grandkids tell me, which uh, I, I don't think I get yet. So yeah, we'll need to go with one of yours. It's all good. It's all good. All right. I got a couple. <clears throat> so Brian, why are skeletons so calm? Why are skeletons so calm? I have no idea. Well, because nothing gets under their skin. Nothing gets. Uh, <laughs> All right, uh, here we go. Uh, Brian, what uh, did one ocean say to the other ocean? 
boy, you're telling me some jokes I've never heard before. I really don't know. What well, did one ocean say to the other ocean? Nothing. They just waved. Just uh, wave. Uh, <laughs> All right, last one, last one. Brian, I want, to, I, want you, I want you to tell me, why are elevator jokes so good? Elevator jokes. Elevator jokes. I don't know. Well, why are elevator jokes so good? Well, see, they work on so many levels. Like the top and the bottom. All right, all right. Well, Brian, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, first, I'll promise that I won't have any jokes on uh, on my <laughs> website, but it's just brianmclaren.net, and you can find links to my books and online resources and other podcasts and so on at brianmclaren.net. Perfect. And uh, I will let listeners know if you like this podcast and you want an easy way to rate and review it, go to ratethispodcast.com slash detox podcast. That's ratethispodcast.com slash D-T-A-L-K-S podcast. And Brian, we need a hashtag for this episode. Should we go with hashtag faith after doubt? That's great. I love it. Perfect. All right. Well, Brian, thank you again so much for coming back on the show. This is always a special treat for me and you're welcome back anytime. Well, keep up the great work. I look forward to the next time. Thank you so much, Brian. Listeners, I'll be back next week with another great episode. But until then, hashtag faith after doubt. And as always, I will hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.